0: Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Well, it is indeed so great to have Pastor Nancy back. And uh, she gave us a scare a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we're just delighted, Nancy, that you're doing, doing so well. And uh, Ben and Tiffany, it's so fun to see you and Kieran and Isabel There's a long story with Ben and Tiffany and me that goes all the way back to their premarital counseling. And it's a wonderful story, a story that that I love. Uh, An unexpected ending to the story, Bill, um, but uh, nonetheless a wonderful story. Um, After they married, they went to England for about a year, Ben? That long? (laughs) Oh my, I am older. I'm older than I thought I was. Thanks, Ben. Uh, ben is a trainer, and uh, Ben, I think I'm going to have to make an appointment uh, after Christmas. Uh, and Tiffany teaches kindergarten, first grade, fifth grade. I want you to know we're really close. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, it's so fun. Uh, one, of, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is, uh, is being in relationship over time. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of uh, growing with the family, with Karen and with, uh, with Isabel. Well, today we continue our series, Do Not Be Afraid. And it's a series um, that is looking at the angelic appearances uh, in the Christmas story. And today we shift from Matthew, where we started last week, to the beginning, the first chapter of Luke. And when most of us read the Christmas story at our house... Uh, Maybe just a little bit, Kevin. You knew I was going to ask that, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so when we, uh, when we celebrate Christmas at our house, um, we read the Christmas story. And, uh, and um, we usually do it from the King James Version. Um, I, you know, maybe that's just a testament to, to, to Barb's in my age again. But that's how it was read in our house. So um, I guess the tradition just got passed down to us. And uh, we usually read from Luke because Matthew is sort of that shorter version and uh, just has um, the appearance uh, of the angel to, to Joseph and then the, the wise men, uh, but Luke kind of gives us the long version of what happened. And we've been we've been looking at Luke. We excuse me. We've been looking at Acts over the summer and the fall. So it's kind of fun to come to now to Luke, who was written by the same person. And uh, this is the beginning uh, of the journey that began with Jesus and the the church uh, and his disciples, and then continuing in the church uh, in Acts. So today I invite you to open to Luke chapter 1, and although we will have cheat sheets for you on the screen, I always encourage you to open your phone or your Bible so that if something is uh, there in the text that can be helpful to you, you can cut and paste or underline or whatever works for you. For those of you that may be guests today, welcome. It's so much fun to see more and more of you coming back. Uh, to church. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And uh, it just does my heart good to uh, to be able to see that um, and uh, to be able to worship uh, together in this way. And of course, our friends watching uh, via video, we love the fact that you're participating. And when you feel comfortable uh, and when we don't hear more about Omicron, um, we hope that you will uh, come and join us as well. I don't know if all of you, you probably know this, but Omicron is the Greek word for O. The last I remember hearing was delta, the Greek letter for, um, for, for D, for RD, and the next thing seemed to be Omicron, so I'm not quite sure what happened to the other ones, but I'm sure there probably were uh, variants that we just didn't hear about. So today we're looking at Zechariah. For those of you that are guests, what I meant to say was uh, we do the talk uh, on Communion Sundays earlier in the service, and then we worship together. We've got some great Christmas music uh, coming. So if you can endure me, uh, really good music is coming this morning. So in verses 1 to 4 of Luke chapter 1, we have there um, the introduction. It's kind of like a salutation. It's a formal introduction. And in this case, it's written to a person. That person is called Theophilus. Uh, Theo, of course, is God, and philos is, is lover or friend. So it either his name either means um, a friend of God or a lover of God or beloved of God, uh, and it could either be his given name or it could be a a special name, a ceremonial or honorary name that has been given to this individual. Um, So we are here going to talk about a, uh, a story that has primarily a Gentile audience. Last week, we talked about the gospel of Matthew having primarily a um, a, a Jewish audience. In this case, it's primarily a Gentile audience. And in the story, we have today the, the story of the birth of the cousin of Jesus, who is John the Baptist. And we can learn some important things about our Christian walk by looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John. Uh, three points today, they're all about the same length, I think. So um, if you want to chart the course of when we're going to be done, you can do it that way. We're going to talk about do not be afraid again today, and the first thing is don't fear, don't be afraid of not measuring up. Don't be afraid of not measuring up. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. According to our text, Zechariah and Elizabeth were perfect. I didn't think there were any perfect people. Do you, do you remember? Some of you will remember this. My, it's one of my favorite stories of the pastor that was saying, Do any of you know any perfect people? And the answer was supposed to be no, you know. But a hand went up in the back. And the pastor's, you know, he's got to do something. So he says, he says, sir, you know a perfect person? And the guy said, yeah, my wife's first husband. Um, I, I love, I love that story. Um, so, so they were perfect according to this. And, um, but, we, but, but that can't be the case because we know that nobody is perfect except God himself and Jesus Christ. But from Luke's perspective, they were perfect. They lived an amazing, righteous, good life. And, you know, we have this, it, it's sort of a folk theology, but I think most of us kind of have this folk theology. And the folk theology is, if you're good, bad things shouldn't happen to you. And these guys were perfect, so they should have lived a life where, where it was just smooth sailing, but we know from the text that that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case. Many couples have trouble getting pregnant, and that was the concern here, and I'm confident that the longer it goes on with a biological clock running, the greater the level of concern is, and that was the situation for these folks. They obviously were concerned about this because our text tells us it was a matter of constant prayer. And now they were old. So imagine the disappointment of living very good lives, only their prayers are not answered, worthy prayers for a child which helps fulfill what God intends for human beings from Genesis, which is to go out and multiply and fill the earth and and, 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 and for some reason, this was desperately what they wanted, but it wasn't happening. And, and in spite of their near perfection, they surely must have asked, what's wrong with us? Why doesn't God grant us the desire of our hearts? Are we not measuring up? And the silence that they apparently experienced would just make things worse. But friends, the Scripture tells us that the rain, and we have a lot of it here in Seattle. Did you know that this fall, they say, is actually the highest recorded amount of rain since they've been keeping uh, records? Um, Roger and Joan, aren't you glad you guys came back from Arizona for the. Yeah. <laughs> so the rain stuff. Rain here isn't designed to be good, it's bad stuff. Bad stuff falls on the just and the unjust, the people that Luke thinks are perfect and those that are not. And if we're going down a wrong path, if if we're making choices that are leading us in a bad direction, we have some responsibility for the bad things that happen to us. But for many people, including these folks who were living this amazing life here, a life that he calls perfect, there were bad things happening to them But it's not because they weren't measuring up. If we're not careful, however, that's the way we feel when stuff happens to us. John Quincy Adams was the, I believe, sixth president of the United States. And he probably served in more offices than any other leader our nation has had. He was the president. He was a senator. He was a congressman. He was a diplomat in different courts of Europe, uh, and he was engaged in the, uh, behind the scenes in uh, in um, the War of eighteen twelve. Anybody know what year the War of eighteen twelve happened? <laughs> he was involved in that, and then and then um, uh, and then the events leading up to um, to the Civil War. In fact, he had served in all of these ways. But this is what he had to say about himself. He said at age 70, with so much behind him, he wrote, my whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I've ever undertook. (laughs) Amazing. So I can't tell you as your pastor why things may or may not be going well or not whether you may or may not have received answers to specific prayers. But don't automatically assume there's something wrong with you, something wrong with your faith, something wrong with your life that has made this happen. God is gracious. He forgives us when we head down the wrong path. He wants to give us the desire of our hearts. And as we look back on our lives, there will be times of joy and sadness, times of success, And failure, but the Lord is with us, friends, in all of those times. The second thing I want to suggest this morning is don't fear the what-ifs of life. Don't be afraid of the what-ifs of life, beginning at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when the division was on duty, according to the custom of priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The time of Zechariah, there were probably something like 8,000 priests. And any individual priest to have the opportunity to light the incense in that part of the temple that was the Holy of Holies was a very special day. This day that is recorded here was probably the best day in Zechariah's life because he probably only had one opportunity, one opportunity as a priest in his whole lifetime to go into the holy of holies be selected by lot and go in and be able to light the incense what happened in that particular situation um, is that the people were gathered outside because it was a special holy day there was a priest just on the outside of the holy of holies and well it doesn't say it here in the scripture uh, Jewish tradition, Jewish practice has it that they used to tie a red rope around the ankle of the priest and the priest had bells attached to his waist so that when he was in ministering in the Holy of Holies you would hear him moving and hear the, the movement of the or the sound of the bells but if something happened either health-wise or relative to his own preparation for being in there um, and it went silent They had the ability, without going in and violating the Holy of Holies, to be able to pull the priest out from that place that was representative of the presence of God. Now, this is an intriguing passage. Zechariah is told not to be afraid. And it doesn't seem that it was the appearance of an angel that he was afraid of. I got to tell you, I probably would be. I mean, if I knew that the person I was talking to was an angel, I'd be... I'd be probably afraid of that counter, wondering, you know, what was going on. But he doesn't seem to be afraid of the angel, as scary as that might be, because the angel doesn't say, don't worry about me, I'm just an angel, but instead he says, your prayer's been answered and you'll have a son. This is really the best day of his life. Zechariah was continuously praying about having a child, and he must have thought over and over and over again about the fact that he didn't have a child, because, I don't know about you, but... Um, What I find in prayers is that I have a time of devotion and prayer when I have a, a, a very specific things that I do devotionally. But during the course of the day, sometimes when I'm reading the news, I'll just stop and do a quick prayer. Uh, a family that's lost loved ones, or the, the kids in the school that you know, were killed, or whatever. It's, it's just like it's sort of a constant kind of a thing to be sensitive to that. He had been continually praying, which meant he had been continually thinking about this, and I'm sure worrying about it, because it was a what if. He was living a godly life. What if God doesn't answer the prayer? What will life be like if God doesn't answer the prayer? And God hadn't answered the prayer, and now they're old. And so, friends, I think it's important for us to recognize that, well, every couple that's struggling in this way doesn't get the same answer. The point is not to worry about it, not to worry about the what-ifs, because the what if won't ultimately change the answer that we receive. A definition, one definition of worrying is dwelling on the what-ifs of life, dwelling on the what-ifs of life. It's a fear of what might happen or might not happen. There's a word that you maybe or may not be familiar with. It's a word called fortitude, fortitude. And fortitude is a word that we who worry need to get into our vocabulary. It's defined as courage in pain and diversity. Courage in pain and diversity. Zechariah and Elizabeth had fortitude. In spite of their pain around having no children, they kept on keeping on with Elizabeth and her life and with Zechariah and his service in the temple they didn't throw up their hands and abandon God or abandon their profession as a priest. They kept on keeping on, keeping on in spite of the fact that they didn't understand the outcome. Some of you may have uh, seen the movie King Richard. I have heard about it, haven't seen it, but um, it was just recently released starring uh, Will Smith as Richard Williams. And it's a story of uh, a single father in, from the mean streets of Compton, California, who had two daughters who had an unusual skill, and as a single dad, he became their coach and began to invest in their lives. In spite of the challenging, challenging situation they found themselves in life in Compton, California, and the host of what ifs of what usually or often happens to people that don't get a very good start in life, they pushed beyond the what ifs and those of you that follow tennis know the Williams sisters, our tennis champions, having won 30 majors between them, plus many more doubles. And then also the courage that they've, they've um, shown as individuals in terms of the things that they've done to make life better for others, including philanthropy. They kept on keeping on in spite of what-ifs. I want to suggest, friends, this morning, don't fear the what-ifs in life. In the midst of the uncertainties of all of us, we need to keep on keeping on because one day as we keep on keeping on, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In spite of years and fears of uncertainties, we serve the kingdom and we make a difference. We don't let the what ifs stop us. Finally, this morning, I want to suggest that we don't want to be afraid of doubts. Don't be afraid of doubts. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, but remained mute. And when, this time of ser- when his time of service ended, he went to his home. After three days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, so Zechariah has the most amazing day in his life. He gets to light the incense in the Holy of Holies, uh, probably a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. An angel shows up, but instead of thanking the angel and saying, Hallelujah, at last my prayers are answered, he questions the angel. He doubts He says, how am I going to know if what you say is true? (laughs) Thankfully, the angel, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to go find somebody else, you're you're doubting, the angel angel gives him some, some discipline because of his doubt, and that is that he's mute and unable to communicate until the baby is born, but the promise was given to him, and he receives that promise. I think... If we're honest, we probably, all of us, are something of a long line of doubters, beginning with the disciple known as Doubting Thomas. We, we often find ourselves in that situation. But friends, doubt doubt actually has consequences. So we all doubt, but when we choose to doubt, there are consequences. It's a kind of fear. Doubt is a kind of fear. And of course, we know that the likelihood of what we fear coming true is very small. And even if it does come true, there's little value in worrying about it. This week, I came across a report of a study by researchers at Penn State University. And they took a group of people that were diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. They were people that worried a lot because of their health condition. And what they did was they um, had them write down their specific worries over a 10-day period. And because we live in the time of texting, they didn't just have to remember it, but they would text them during the course of the day to actually have them write down the worries. And the worries that the researchers were concerned about were close-term worries, not the long-term worries. So am I going to pass the test that I have tomorrow versus might I get cancer someday in my life. So they were, they were worries that could be verified as to whether they would come true or not. And so the researchers then focused on these, and, and the average uh, person responded um, to three or four uh, testable worries per day. Now, you don't want to know what the result is, and this may or may not surprise you, a whopping 91% of worries were false alarms. What they worried about did not come true. And of the remaining 9% of worries that did come true, the outcome was better than they expected one-third of the time. And for about one in four participants, exactly 0% of their worries came true. Seth Gillihan in Psychology Today, who reported on this, says this. He says, deceit is a good word to describe the nature of worry, implicitly demanding that we pay attention to it because of the threat is real. In reality, it's nearly always a false alarm. Importantly, individuals whose worries come true less often were more likely to benefit from treatment for their worry and anxiety. Thus, keeping track of how one's worries turn out seems to be an effective way to release compulsive worrying. Friends, don't fear doubts. Don't fear doubts, but give over them. We've all had doubts along the way but we waste a lot of time when we dwell on them. Worrying doesn't change the outcomes. Doubt does not change the nature of objective truth. I like the way St. Augustine puts it. He said that we don't need to completely understand in order to believe. We don't need to completely understand in order to believe. Rather, he said we need to believe in order to understand. We need to believe in order to understand. There's a threshold of belief that we cross that it's a threshold of trust that in spite of what the outward circumstances are, we believe that God's purposes are being accomplished. Years ago, I read the Catholic theologian Hans Küng, And Hans Küng, in his book, Does God Exist?, talked about the analogy of faith and Swimming and understanding swimming and learning to swim. And here was the picture he had, and that is that when we wade into the water, we know that water doesn't hold us up. From the time we're little and we just wade, we know that water doesn't hold us up. But we see people swimming, and we see that somehow, in spite of our experience, they're floating. And he goes on to say that faith is a lot like that, that that we have to get into the water and we have to experience the buoyancy of the water ourselves. And then the questions and the doubts and the concerns that we have begin to fit into place because we need to believe and cross that threshold of trust in order to understand Faith is like that, friends. We find that faith holds us up. It makes sense in a way that it never did outside that commitment to believe. We all have doubts in the journey, don't we? But once we've entered the water of belief, we will not only understand, but we'll be held up by the arms of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the beautiful story of Christmas and the repetitive message of the angels not to fear. I pray today, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would help us to enter into this season not dwelling on the what-ifs of life, but leaning in faith to the one who holds us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We make a transition at this point for a time together around the communion table. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in this. And we do this part of our service, first of all, by making sure that our vertical relationship with God is as it should be and our horizontal relationship with others is as it should be. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to invite you to take a moment in the quietness of your own hearts to make sure that the vertical and horizontal relationships are as they should be, and if they're not, we call it confession and repentance. You can do that yourself, where you are in the quietness of your heart, and then we'll have together a prayer of confession so that we can take the communion elements together. Before we do that, um, I want to make sure that each one of you has uh, communion elements. If you don't, um, Corky is at the back and Daryl and would see that you uh, get them if you don't have communion elements. Okay, it looks like there are a couple of folks that do not. For the rest of us, I encourage you to open the, the uh, communion. Uh, it's a little tricky sometimes and there's a wafer on top and then underneath there is the, the juice. Would the rest of you please stand with me? And let us take a moment and humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Let's join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The words of institution for our service come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where we see how the early church remembered this moment and we join with them across the years and with Christians around the world. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Our Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. We thank you, Lord, that that process began with a baby in Bethlehem who grew up and with his life showed us how to live and with his death became the means by which our sins are forgiven. And For that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be-